Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, Cyber Hygiene, we are joined by Jason Benedict, Associate Vice President for IT and Chief Information Security Officer at Fordham University, who shares his thoughts about securing yourself and your data while teaching and learning online. I was hoping we could start off by just having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how long you've been at Fordham and what you do here. For those of you that tuned in, I'm Jason Benedict, uh, the Associate Vice President for IT and Chief Information Security Officer. I've been at the university for 29 years. I started off in Fordham's um, very well-renowned try-before-you-buy program, wherein I was a consultant uh, back in 1991 at the law school. And uh, their uh, IT department had moved out of town and and had left them high and dry, and they asked me if I wanted to come on work full-time. Of course, I did. I was quite young. I I was probably 20 or 21 years old. And I thought it was an exciting opportunity for me to work at at Fordham University. So I rose up through the ranks, spent a good long time at the law school, uh, became the director of information systems and planning there, then came up uh, to the university proper. I was the director of computer services for a good long time. And then when our last CIO uh, came in, uh, you know, I had just gotten married. I had just uh, had a child, moved to New Jersey, and he saw me as a flight risk and uh, wanted to keep me on board. So he said, you know, you have this predilection towards security and, and, and cyber. How would you like to be our first cybersecurity kind of uh, concentration? Um, and I said, sure. So I, I took that on back in 2005 as the uh, then the executive director of the information security office and then grown that department uh, from scratch with one person uh, to now a full cadre of, of really dedicated cybersecurity professionals who um, are really passionate about what they do. And and we take care of and tend to the confidentiality, availability, and integrity of university data and information. And I'm wondering if you can talk kind of maybe in three phases about what your sense of the change in what dangers you're most concerned about, what you're most wanting to, especially for faculty members, to think about in terms of keeping information safe from when you began the job to now and then particularly now when so many of us are doing our work from home because of the pandemic there have been both evolutions and revolutions in cyber for the longest time we were worried about password someone stealing your password or you giving your password away but that was really rare back in 2005 i mean certainly there were phishing schemes where people would send you emails and try to trick you into giving away your password. And they were hackers who early on in my career were really out for exploration in, in a kind of a whitish, grayish hacker sense where they weren't out to do damage. You know, they just wanted to poke around and see what they could find, curiosity. And while it's not good and it's certainly something you want to avoid, it wasn't as nefarious as all that. Computer espionage and cyber became more the way of organized crime and and state actors who were really going out there uh, to make money in hacking and and sell personally identifiable information. Back in 2005, I mean, the big issue was you'd get a virus or a self-replicating worm, you know, a computer program that would attach itself to other computer programs and install itself around the, the area. 
and then those th that technology for self-replicating software or viruses was monetized over time and uh, that gave us botnets where these computers can be controlled by by a third party to do sometimes damage to the machine in question or uh, exfiltrate or take away intellectual property or, or personally identifiable information but the real value in botnets became over time uh, the ability to amass um, computing resources to do other things as kind of pivot points. So botnets over time became cumbersome because they would take up computing cycles. I don't know that they were really a risk to the machines that they were housed on, but places like Fordham University who have great bandwidth um, you know, out to the internet and a lot of computing cycles that go idle, the bad guys can control hundreds of machines and use them to mount spam campaigns on third parties, not necessarily Fordham, um, churn nowadays Bitcoin uh, mining, uh, which is an, an illegal operation, um, tons of things. So back in 2005, you know, we were mostly worried about antivirus on your machines, making sure your machines were protected by antivirus, um, password aging and ensuring that folks changed their passwords and kept their cyber hygiene up to, up to snuff. Um, ensuring people didn't share information and sort of developing policies around that. And now the, the hot button topic, I mean, fast forward to today is, you know, ransomware is the currently the ultimate implication, right? Your machine is compromised in some way. And now they hold your machine for ransom. They encrypt it or otherwise make it unavailable and then hold you over the proverbial barrel and say, you know, pay us or we're not or keeping your data now there's ways to mitigate against that of course uh, a good backup a regularly scheduled backup with proper rotational schedules you know it'll work you you just have to identify what your tolerance is for how much work you're willing to lose you know what's a rotational schedule jason so if you back up every single day and you don't keep your backups let's say you only keep one day of backup so let's say you back up your machine on tuesday and then you back up your machine again on Wednesday, overwriting Tuesday's data. Well, that's right. fine, right? Because if something happens on Thursday, you can always go back to Wednesday. And, and you lose a day's worth of data. In the business, we call that a recovery point objective, which just means how much your data you're willing to tolerate losing or how much work you want to redo. Right. Um, so the problem is if the quote-unquote bad guy got into your machine on Monday and you backed up on Tuesday – your Tuesday backup was already infected with ransomware. And on Wednesday, you still are infected by ransomware and you backed them over Tuesday. So now when you try to restore, you've merely restored a backup that's already infected, effectively accomplishing nothing. So what you need to do is be able to go back to the backup or to the, the last known data set that was unaffected where the integrity was not compromised. Um, now, how long did that happen? Well, that's an issue for forensics, and that's a whole line of work in cyber is figuring out where the actual infection took place or when the actual infection took place and being sure we can recover to there. So a backup rotation schedule says not only do you have your daily backups, but you need monthly and yearly because as you roll back, it increases your window for um, loss tolerance. Jason, I feel like when my doctor asks me how many glasses of wine I drink a week and I, I have that same expression on my face, like, you know, <laughs> you know, or like when you're a kid and the dentist asks you if you're flossing and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm flossing. People don't take 
proper precautions. And sometimes, you know, they they defer to the infrastructure or the organization who's running their their computing technologies, which is what we've done since 2005. And then one more thing, and just something to think about. Uh, back in the olden days, as I said, you know, in the long, long ago, people didn't have the kind of computing power at home. They, there wasn't the internet connectivity. So if you wanted to be productive for work, you know, or for teaching and learning, you needed to come into the office because that's where the software was that you used your tools, right? You didn't have Word at home. It was a $1,000 computing package. You didn't have a computer that could connect and collaborate. So you would always come into the office. And when you were in the office, you were protected by the enterprise class protections. You know, a firewall, for example, where we block the bad guys from even coming in with a piece of technology. By intrusion detection systems, where we compare activity on the on the network against a baseline that we know to be a valuable, normal baseline. But when you go home and you start working, as we see more BYOD, you know, bring your own device, as more and more computing becomes commoditized and people can buy that technology or share it on the internet as a service, you know, the software as a service model, those protections now shift and are now the responsibility of the person at home because they are essentially the network administrator of their own home network, whether it be wireless or otherwise. So a lot of those things that they took for granted in the enterprise space, the responsibility is now shifted. So now as we talk about, you know, teaching online and folks are home, you know, working remotely outside of a, of a corporate environment, all those responsibilities for things that I'm typically concerned about or that I'm tasked with, with working on with my folks is uh, your responsibility now. So to that end, I mean, what faculty should be doing and specifically is I, I recognize that it's not their specialty, you know, and nor should it be. But unfortunately, the revolution that we're at today details that they have to take a little extra steps. And I know that they're already busy and doing things, but, and we provide these online computer-based training courses. They're available uh, through the portal if you log into the my.fordham.edu and you have access to information security essentials, uh, how to protect your home network, uh, how to can protect yourself when working remotely, key topics, and we also drill down into some more media areas, but even those first two, which we've recently made mandatory after the pandemic, that we, we really require now uh, folks take a information security essentials course. It's a, about 15 minutes, um, and another one that's another 15 or 12 or 15 minutes, that you take those courses and educate yourself, and our tagline is, if you don't know how to do something, you're uncomfortable, you have a question, please call us at the, at the information security office our folks are always available 24 hours a day, really, honestly, seven days a week, and we'll help you or we'll get you the help you need or we'll do it for you. But like the old Apex Tech commercials, you have to take the first step. You have to call us. <laughs> it was years ago when I first became acquainted with you, you were giving a talk. You know, Part of your talk was about how to develop a, an effective password. And I still use your strategy now. Can you talk a little bit about, about that if you, if you remember? Right now with two-factor authentication, Passwords are becoming a little less important because the tenets of passwords, right, or authentication secrets is the real technical term for them, is that you want to have something you know, which is a password, something you have, some sort of a token, or something you are, biometrics. And, you know, looking backwards, biometrics still kind of freak folks out because there's a big brother notion of getting your fingerprint or some real in-depth personal 
identification as to who you are. And I don't blame people. It's probably the, the most secure model, but I can see why people shy away from that. The other way is something you have, like a token or a special code, your phone, for example, that you have with you in your physical possession. And then, of course, something you know is your password. So when we first started with authentication uh, security, we said, you know, have a secret password. But the problem was people were choosing password 20 and password 123. So we had to make the passwords more complex because there's this notion of password entropy. What password entropy says is that with really high-powered computers, you can brute force a password, meaning you could try every iteration of a password, AAAA, BBBB, BBBC, and on, until you get to the person's password. You have to ensure that the password is changed before a brute force attack could happen. So thinking about that using modern technology, if your password's only three characters, you can brute force that using today's technology in seconds. So then you make it four characters, five, six, seven, eight, and on. And then you have to change the character set because there's algorithms out there that can calculate how long it would take to brute force a four-character password out of the 26 alphabet characters. If you add numbers, you now add another nine characters to the set. If you add special characters, exclamation points, um, ampersands, you add more characters to the space to churn through. So you come up with some rational thing like, you know, 12 characters, mixed case with a number. You've all seen that when you go online. But as you jokingly said password 20, what you wind up getting is people would say password with a capital P and 20. And then the next password is password with a capital P in the beginning and 21. And now there are new programs out there for the bad guys that know that. So if they know what your password was, they now start running iterations of that same password, tacking on numbers at the end, tacking on numbers in the beginning, you know, most folks use a capital in their first letter in their password. It's pretty typical. They don't put them in the middle. So what we did is we we head to your, your question. We said, you know what? It's so hard for people to remember passwords, which is why they go to password 20 or Fred is funny 22, that we started saying, you know what? Don't make it a password. Make it a passphrase. And a passphrase is much longer. So you can really extend out that character space by saying the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog. That's something you know. And it would be impossible to brute force that because it's such a long character set. It would take forever to brute force that, even in the in the alphabetic only space. Or you can take your favorite song, you know, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, and just change it to T T L S and then you know the rest of the song. So there are ways of remembering a password that doesn't have to be something really complex. It turns out that with modern technology, that's really not even sufficient, nor is it desirable. And that's where two-factor authentication came from, which everybody in the university currently uses, which leverages not only something you know, your base password, but something you have, the second component that we talked about earlier, and it couples them together. So you still need to have that base password, but even if it's compromised, as long as the bad guy doesn't also have the thing you have in your hand, they can't get into our systems. And we've had that situation at Fordham. You know, we see in our logs folks having their passwords compromised or available on the dark web. And it's okay because as long as that bad guy doesn't have their cell phone or their text message or their ability to, to kind of engage with Duo, our multi-factor authentication tool, we're safe. And we've seen many times uh, bad guys trying to access our systems, get presented with the challenge for the second factor, and it fails out, and our data and our users are safe. 
So that's kind of the progression of how passwords have gone and why we went to multi-factor authentication. And it's been a great boon. We have had, you know, our statistics are before we went to multi-factor authentication, we had about 80 compromises a month, which is huge. And when I say compromises, no data loss, but people's passwords being breached, people getting into their email and sending out email as them. And since we went to multi-factor about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, uh, we've been at zero. So we have demonstrably created a better environment uh, with multi-factor where we are no longer chasing ghosts in the system and uh, our folks are much safer in the university with their university data. I mean, what they're doing in their personal life is really for their uh, concern, but university data has been significantly improved. Uh, security has been significantly improved. One of the things I wanted to talk about today was the move to the cloud and what were the implications for, for you, your work, the university from the security perspective? You know, a lot of it was cultural as most of my personal work is, is, is about creating a culture of security and, and a really deep understanding of folks, for folks, so that they are comfortable in the environment. The cloud was scary, but the cloud as a, as a construct is no different putting in a server and networking PCs. When you have all your data is on your personal computer, that's not the cloud. The work you do, where you store your documents, where the software exists. But even back in, in the 90s, in the old days, when we put your, your data on a server, to you, that was the cloud. You know, it, it was just another computer other than yours. So you were always, quote unquote, in the cloud, but there wasn't a word for it. I'll talk about that in a second. I, I want to talk about the cloud. But then we moved it out, and then you took it out of the server, and you put it to – you take it off the server, and you put it in a data center, even further removed. It's the cloud. And then you took the data center, and you moved it off campus. It's the cloud. And then you moved it off campus to the public internet, you know, places that specialize in storing your data or running applications or running services – it's the cloud. And the reason it's called the cloud, for those folks who don't know, is when you draw network diagrams, you know, you have the network diagramming standard is you draw a little computer, you draw a server, networks are lines connecting computers. And when things go to the internet, the symbol for the internet in network diagramming is a cloud. So when you draw it, if you want to show this is a network on site, on premises, and here's another network on premises, and they're connected through the internet, you put a picture of a cloud and you draw a little lightning bolt between the cloud and a little lightning bolt for communication to the other side and the cloud. So some geeky nerd like me got in front of somebody, used the term cloud, somebody else liked it, and now we're now storing things in the cloud. But there's no such thing, right? It's a, it's a construct. It's, it's a mental construct. You're really storing things on a server connected via wires to somebody else's data center somewhere. So... There's no inherent risk in storing things in the cloud necessarily. The risk is, is your cloud partner, Google, Amazon, Blackboard, Panopto, whomever, are they as secure with your data as you would be? Now, from my experience, the answer is yes, if not more. We talked about this, right? We joked about not backing things up correctly. We joked about the effort it would take to go through and take the cybersecurity training and get yourself up to speed when it's not your expertise. But, you know, these companies are bound by not only business policies and business protocols, but they also want to be profitable. So they're going to take the effort to do things correctly. Also, they employ vast, uh, su vastly superior technology 
than we could ever deploy at Fordham University because they're funded for it and it's their business model. They have the staff, they have a huge bench of, of expertise to protect this kind of security and we're doing the best we can. Not that that's not good enough, but there's only so much we can do at Fordham University, right? And there's only so much you can do as an individual. You think about leveraging the security at Google. You think about leveraging the security at Amazon. You're in a far better position storing your data there than you are at home, not only for resiliency sake, just thinking about it. If you store your stuff on your laptop and your laptop gets lost or stolen, it's no longer with you. But if it's in the cloud, you're fine. You can continue to work. If you, um, you know, if there's a, a fire, God forbid, in your environment, whether it be home or even at Fordham University, an earthquake, if you're in the cloud, you're fine. Uh, they have enhanced security, enhanced visibility into things. Now, certainly they're a bigger target, right? Because when you're home, who's really hacking your home computer? No one's coming after you. But people, plenty of people are trying to hack into Google and Amazon, you know, and all those other services. But they take the proper precautions. And really, if you if you see the breaches and stuff, you don't hear about breaches in those major providers. However, we take the same diligence. I, I you know, I'll be sending out a message shortly to folks talking about that. But cloud computing and the ships of the cloud, they're met with the same scrutiny as we've always dealt with um, our on-premises software and on-premises uh, tools and resources and services. No difference. Uh, they have to perform to the same standards, which we vet through a very rigorous third-party risk management program and protocol set. They have to prove what they're capable of. We have to make sure that those um, protections match our faculty and our businesses uh, needs and requirements. And when they don't, uh, our risk management team identifies that. And then we make informed decisions about who we're going to partner with and, uh, and what our risks are. How do you think about these conversations? Can you kind of help us put some texture on how you think about balancing ease of access with security when it comes to higher education? It's a really good question. You know, the the basic tenets of, of higher education is that we should be an open and welcoming institution. And and as you just alluded to, opening uh, or open and welcoming is open and welcoming for the bad guys too. Um, so we really have to find a, an interesting, a, a, a usable balance between security and usability. And that's a continuum because as you, as you said, as you increase security and the friction, you decrease usability to some extent and you have to find a happy medium. Typically what we do at Fordham specifically is we tend to be um, early followers is a good way of, of explaining it. You know, we're certainly not on the bleeding edge of tech um, and we try not to be laggards um, drag, lagging behind uh, typical standards. For example, let's look at multi-factor, which we talked about a little earlier. You know, we could have implemented multi-factor many, many years ago. The technology existed, but it was new. And it was probably not um, as common as you see it today. What we found is most folks were facile with the concepts of multi-factor from their banks, from other institutions. So we were a little late to the game putting multi-factor in, in the grand scheme of when the technology existed. But we waited until it was more commonplace where the migration and the acceptance would have been more uh, a little bit more easy. So... That's one thing. The other thing is there are certain inherent risks of doing what we do. You know, we have to take on certain risks and they're acceptable because it's the nature of our business. 
So you don't want to lock things down. And think about it. You know, you can lock it down where a person or a faculty member couldn't even share a slide with a student, you know, or, or a lesson plan because it's so secret, right? They would do it in science or in pharma, right? You, you can do that. But that's not what we do for a living. That's not what the line of business supports. So clearly that is one example of where you have to be a little bit more open. Now, do you want to be so open that someone who's not paying for those services, you know, can, can see them? Well, for Fordham, the answer is currently no. You don't want to be that. But there are some organizations, some schools, and some models that say that that, that education or that information should be accessible by everybody in the world um, for free. And if that were to become Fordham's business or the business strategy that Fordham wanted to um, engage in, we would have to change our security to match the business need of the university. So we have recommendations about how folks can accomplish their goals and have uh, the appropriate amount of security or risk management that is commensurate with those business needs. So really what it comes down to is we need to have some very um, honest and candid early discussions with the business units, which means the faculty, the enrollment group, the alumni development group, student affairs, and find out what it is they want to accomplish and what business need it will serve, and then develop the security around the business needs as opposed to the other way around. So if we know what we have to accomplish, we will do the best we can at keeping the barriers to entry low while still protecting the engagement or the endeavor to the best of our ability. Now, we can't protect it perfectly, so we're always going to try to reach that balancing act or try to reach a, a point but it really is going to be business driven. You know, if a faculty member wanted to have access, as long as we're protecting, if a faculty member wanted to grant access to a more global environment or more global population, we can do that. But we want to make sure that that business model doesn't impinge upon the, the um, rights or privileges of another group in the institution that may not want to have a, a more lax security. And, and it's hard. It's a, it's definitely a balancing act. And that's why I think both of you, both you, Anne, and, and Steve, have served with me on the Information Risk Management Board, where what we do is we look at business need, we look at the um, the appropriate or, or possible countermeasures to balance available risks. And we talk about, at, in that group, we talk about what the university as a whole, represented by different uh, the different verticals, really can tolerate and it really comes down to risk tolerance is is as we adjust the university's risk tolerance we adjust the countermeasures to compensate you know it, it's not a one-size-fits-all right right and i remember when i hosted a an event over zoom and i wanted it to be free and open to the public as broadly defined as possible i talked to calvin buyer in it who's our zoom expert and he walked me through how a webinar format was going to be the most secure and accessible right so you know there are just having these conversations about what makes things open without you know kind of exposing you to the risk of something like zoom bombing it's a great example because you wanted that session to be globally available yes you could have done it incorrectly but because you had a conversation, you said, here's what I want to accomplish. And we gave you the best answer to accomplish that before you had made what could have been a mistake. What's something that you see 
faculty worrying about that really they shouldn't be worrying about? And what's something that you see faculty not worrying about enough? Huh. Uh, I think that faculty should need not worry about privacy in as, in as much as their um, work product, you know, their, their faculty content, faculty work product is protected. You know, I, I see a lot of folks worried that um, IT or the bad guy is, you know, which is interesting that we would be put in the same category, but that IT or the bad guy would be um, able to uh, read or otherwise pilfer their intellectual property and their, their hard work. You know, if, if you take proper precautions, and it is kind of a two-folded answer, if you take proper precautions, you will be as secure as you can possibly be. Meaning, um, if you throw caution to the wind and you decide not to run an antivirus program and you somehow, you know, disable it, or you don't have a firewall on your turned on on your home router, or you share passwords online, which you can't do with Fordham because of MFA, if you take proper precautions, standard cyber hygiene, your privacy is protected. Um, you know, that that's kind of what I see faculty worried about the most is they're worried about their work product and their intellectual property. And I don't blame them for being worried. I just think they worry about it more than is necessary. And the things that they're not worried about enough is really their own efforts, you know, their own personal efforts to secure their environment, meaning ensuring that their passwords are up to date, ensuring that their software is patched when new revisions come out that fix holes or threats that they're prompted, you know, sometimes not by Fordham, sometimes it is by Fordham, but someone says, hey, you know, the newest version of Word is out there or the newest version of Adobe, here's a new version, please update. What I see a lot is folks saying, I don't have time right now. And they kick that can down the road. And those are precisely the things that you need to do to protect your intellectual property and protect your personally identifiable information and your health records and anything else that's on that device or in the cloud, as it were, you have to take those necessary steps because not only is it the right thing to do, but it will protect you for the things that you're overly worried about in the first place. I'm wondering if you could tell us about someone in your life, you know, from kindergarten up through college and graduate school, someone that mattered to you and that's kind of that you still think back on them as an important influence on your thinking. There's so many. I mean, really, there are so many, which one of the reasons I, I love Fordham University so dearly. I, I don't even have the time to tell you about all of them, and they, they are in my mind constantly. But the one, as you were talking, as you were asking, the one that popped into my head, so I'm going to go with my gut on this, not maybe the best answer, but is Father Richard Lawless, who was a professor at Fordham, a philosophy professor and taught the critical uh, thinking class, um, faith and critical reasoning, uh, when I was an undergraduate. And I have always been a student of religion and, and faith in general. Not that I think of myself as religious or, or particularly faithful, but I'm I'm fascinated by the concepts and, and about the ethical and, and moral implications of, of religion in general, uh, both sociologically and developmentally. And it's just, it's a great topic, not what I do for a living. So it's really kind of far off the beaten path of what I'm sure you expected to hear about my computer science teacher who told me how to program COBOL. But so Father Wallace as a priest had this amazing, I can't even explain it, this amazing 
characteristic where he could teach faith in a way that made sense to me for the first person ever, whether they be rabbis in my youth or priests later on in life or, or people I've spoken to. Father Lawless, between allegory and critical ways of evaluating things and his explanation of, of scripture and, and how it really relates to the modern world and what the, the to be interpreted to mean really gave me such a great insight into what I personally believe faith is. He informed my belief of who and what God is that was so far out of the realm of anything. I mean, this is what college education is all about. Is I went into, into college wanting to be an IT guy, you know, or, or and to have my most meaningful experience be a class that I was forced to take by Fordham, you know. So meanwhile, it wasn't the classes and the things I was interested in that I already had a predilection towards, the things that I had already been interested in. That wasn't the thing that moved me. You know, the thing that moved me was this new concept that blew me out of the water because it was exposure to a new way of thinking about something that was so, talk about fear, uncertainty, and doubt, you know, that was so occluded for me and that Father Lawless gave me a new appreciation for faith and at the risk of sounding like I'm repeating the topic of the class, for faith and critical reasoning, that it was one of the classes I talk about all the time and I always mention him as I as I tell my son as I talk to other people in my life about when it comes up, you sometimes you get into these real eclectic topics about God and heaven and death and whatever shows up in a well-rounded conversation with, with your friends. And uh, I often quote things that I learned in Father Wallace's class some 20 years later. So uh, he's the name that popped into my head as you were asking, but I probably have a list of others. Wow. I wish people could have seen the smile on your face when I started <laughs> asking that question. That was a great answer, Jason. What a great conversation, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This was great. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.